The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guests today are Ines Schwertner and Adrian Darb. We talked about the German election results and the partial revival of the SPD, which had once seemed to be in the same kind of electoral death spiral as the French Socialists, but which is now poised to lead the next German government. We also talked about the possible permutations of governing coalitions and the unusual extent of the Red Scare tactics deployed by the CDU and the other parties of the right against De Linke and the SPD. Finally, we chatted about the legacy of Angela Merkel and why Germany's longest-serving Chancellor since Helmut Kohl is so admired by liberals abroad and whether her reputation for competence and fairness is entirely warranted. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. One that you might like to check out is Falling Down, The Conservative Party and the Decline of Tory Britain by Phil Burton Cartledge. Since the era of Thatcherism, the Tories have struggled to find a popular vision for the United Kingdom. At the same time, their members have become increasingly old and their values have not been adopted by younger voters. Falling Down, a new book by Phil Burton Cartledge, offers an explanation for how the Tory party came to this position and what might lie ahead. The book is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Ines Schwerner is an author, political analyst and managing editor at Jacobin Germany and she lives in Berlin. Today's second guest is Adrian Dubb. Adrian is Professor of Comparative Literature and German Studies at Stanford University and Director of the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Studies. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. So we're talking on Monday the 27th. And so we now have the preliminary results of of the German elections. And the SPD have emerged as the single largest party on about 25%, or in fact closer to 26%. The CDU have crashed to the worst result in their history, just over 24%. The Greens, who had once seemed like they might plausibly be able to become one of the two largest parties, ended up on 14.8%, less than they'd hoped for at the start of the campaign, but still a, a big historic result for them. The Liberal, fiscally conservative Free Democrats received 11.5% of the vote. De Linke, the left, got just 4.9%. And the far-right alternative for Deutschland got a a little over uh, 10% of the vote. Now today, Olaf Scholz, the SPD's candidate for Chancellor and the Finance Minister under Angela Merkel's ruling coalition, has stated that the SPD's preference is for forming a so-called traffic light coalition of the SPD, the Greens and the Free Democrats. Before we get into how such a coalition might be formed and how it might rule, perhaps we could first chat about the revival of the SPD, which only five months ago was polling at just 15%. 
And indeed, it's not so long ago when there was talk of the SPD going the way of PASOK or the French Socialist Party. So if we start with you, Ines, in your opinion, what explains this partial revival of the SPD? Well, I think one of the reasons is definitely the other party's weaknesses. So um, the uh, candidate from the CEU, Armin Laschet, was really weak follow-up to Angela Merkel. And this made it easier for Olaf Scholz to present himself to be like Merkel 2.0. Like he was really the perfect embodiment of that kind of what we call Merkelism because he was just the same kind of technical, or he still is the same kind of technocratic person who, despite really some crises in the SPD and also like a strong left wing, I mean, he was not voted the um, chair of the party um, only a year ago, so or one and a half years ago. And that was like a real a dramatic defeat at the time. And you would think that um, the SPD would have gotten to the left, but the right wing were, I sort of um, got back and they found this called inner centrist um, sort of move where they um, like they wanted unity and then they chose him for um, for a candidate to be chancellor and they did it pretty early in the race so I think it was pretty smart of the SPD and also their campaign was all in all they did not make that many mistakes like the Greens did or the Christian Democrats and so I think like these points um, like these three pillars actually made him now successful. Yeah, because he was just the right successor to Merkel. And I think this was basically what most of the people in Germany wanted, especially after the pandemic. I think that sounds right to me. I think that that uh, in some way, what's shocking is that you look at the at the map and it looks like a you know a tsunami of, of red. Um, but really, this is a this is a this is a vote for continuity in a really strange way. Uh, there, there, uh, you know, there, there were some options for radical departures from from Merkelism, and the voters, on the whole, declined to take those. In spite of that partial improvement in in the SPD's vote, nonetheless, it's not the situation of earlier years when we you know we had a real duopoly along with perhaps the Free Democrats in the, in the post war. Period. And one of the buzzwords that's been flying around has been Dutchification, referring to the proliferation of, of smaller parties and, and the breakup of those kind of duopolies that we, that we saw after the war across Western Europe. So do you think that something like 25% is now perhaps the ceiling for the SPD and, and there is no return to support of, of higher levels? Yeah, I mean, I guess that it's really like the Volkspartei is coming to an end um, in in some ways. Um, Which is the the People's Party. The People's Party, yeah, right. Because like um, the CDU and the SPD used to really um, be able to always have their voters, you know, basically like, but the, but those declined like over the last couple of years, this changed. And I think and to both parties, actually. And so you think you can, you can call it a trend that now different parties represent different milieus. And um, it's not so much that they're like, um, you know, uh, that the, that the uh, Christian Democrats are binding like their um, middle classes and upper classes and, and conservative milieus and the um, social Democrats and working classes and, um, you know, parts of the middle classes. But now everyone is running for the center. Everyone wants to be in the middle. and the, But there's not enough room for everyone in the middle, you know. So um, the Greens are trying to 
um, actually reach some people um, from the middle classes that are well educated, um, living in a city, and um, but also now in rural areas, people that are just interested or more inclined to um, have like different climate politics. And so the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats and the Greens are sort of running to the center. And, and this is why now actually the two parties have sort of split into three. Whereas uh, the liberals, I would say, still um, they're still running um, for their own clientele, like they're just going for like professionals, you know, like doctors and lawyers and really like a, a special class of people. And then there is also like this um, new right wing party that is just really pressuring the Christian Democrats from the right. So they're sort of there's this tension for the Christian Democrats from from the left, from the Greens, who are like this new bourgeois kind of party, and then from the right, from this new right-wing um, party. And I think this is where they are pressured. And, and the Social Democrats, on their hand, they are pressured by Die Linke. And so I think this is just what happened in many European countries, but specific, specifically in Germany now, also because of this yeah, special situation on uh, like also East and West. And you can see that uh, the far right is really strong in the East. Mm, where, where the CDU vote crashed. Yes, exactly. So so these processes that Eunice is describing have been going on for I think upwards of 20 years. Uh, they happened first on the left and then eventually on the right with the formation of the AFD. And I think that this, the, 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 the splintering of uh, these parties... I think reflects two things. One is, you know, for the Volkspartei, the, the big popular parties, um, you know, being part of that party was almost part of one's way of life, right? The CDU would kind of, people would go vote after going to church. And, uh, the SPD, I mean, like, I'm being a little stereotypical here, but people would go to the union meeting and then, then go to the polls. Um, that, those are both life forms that are becoming less common, I would say, in Germany. And, and, and therefore the anchor that these parties had in the very, uh, middle of people's lives in some way uh, has has fractured. The one place where that took the longest was Bavaria, but we saw yesterday that that's happening there now too. Um, and I think one of the so so that 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 was predictable that that would play out uh, yesterday. What I didn't quite see coming is the regionalization. Um, it, it is not just about milieus anymore. It is also about regions. Uh, so the AFD, you know, the, that the AFD was gonna do better in the east and in the west. Uh, that was sort of self-understood going in. But if you look at the, at the, the vote totals, the fascinating thing is actually they did well only really in the southeast. So Saxony and Thuringia. Whereas the SPD is sort of picking up a lot of the old left vote, um, from the party Die Linke, which is, which split from the SPD way back in the day, um, became kind of a regional party for the entire East of Germany, um, and now appears to become, and now is sort of finding its voters being kind of reabsorbed by the SPD, at least in the Northeast. So there are, you know, I think this is one of the first times we're seeing really kind of regional splits, um, you know, beyond the borders that sort of have defined German post-war history, uh, that there's more specifically uh, regional things uh, going on. And I think that's, I don't know what that means yet, but I think that that's fascinating. Do you have any sense of, of what that's about? Why the FD would be doing so well in the Southeast, uh, not in the, the Northeast, whereas you say the SPD have done well? I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question. I, I do think some of it just has to do with personality. So uh, the SPD, 
uh, has fielded some fairly strong candidates over uh, over the years in uh, Mecklenburg-Vorpommern and 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 uh, in Brandenburg, um, and it has in fact uh, is govern has governed or is governing in both of those states. Um, I also think that the proximity to Berlin might might um, make a difference here, um, and then I do think that it's, it's significant that the AFD probably never stole that many voters from the Linke uh, in let's say Saxony. They're stealing them from the CDU, <clears throat> and and uh, on the one hand, you know, uh, there there is a kind of interpretation, and I might get myself in trouble here, but there's a kind of interpretation that says, you know, this is all about sort of you know the the left behind east but it's it's significant that it's only happening in certain states um and and they are noticeably the ones where the cdu tacked hard to the right and some in some cases the fdp in the case of thuringia also tacked far to the right um and in sort or to get sort of afd voters back um and what appears to have happened uh is that they thereby legitimated this is the austrian paradox i would say uh they legitimated the far right um and made them more more um uh, more electable uh whereas my impression is that in, in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern and in Brandenburg that that didn't happen meaning if you you know put your x next to the AFD a lot of people did but it it means something different that would be that's sort of my hypothesis but i you know i would want to see a lot of data on that before i before i assign my name to that interpretation so going back to what kind of government we might see coming out of the coalition negotiations so on the the most likely outcome which seems to be the the so-called traffic light coalition between the SPD the greens and the, and the free democrats the seemingly obvious sticking point here is the very strong commitment of of the free democrats to the so-called debt break germany's constitutional limit on borrowing at a time when both the Greens and the SPD favour increasing investment, not least in response to the climate crisis. And we can expect the Free Democrats to at least initially insist on their leader, Christian Lindner, becoming the new finance minister. How likely is it that such a coalition can be formed? And is the condition for such a coalition likely to be the frustration of the SPD and, and the Greens' spending plans? So I think it is still the likeliest uh, option. But I, I the the... There are two issues here, and I, I, I'm going to be a little, I'm going to editorialize a little bit here. There are, there are two kind of wild cards here. One is indeed <clears throat> that there are some central uh, promises that the FDP made um, th- that uh, it's unlikely they're li- they're they're going to relent on, uh, and yet they would be the junior partner in a coalition of three. By all logic, they ought to you know, relent on them. The other thing is that the FDP has a kind of history of walking away from governmental responsibility once it's thrust upon them. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm trying to be nice here. Um, I'm trying to be diplomatic, but, but, um, they, they, they always say they want, you know, uh, what they say, what do they say? We want to take responsibilities always, their phrase. Um, it appears that they're actually a little bit scared of it when it, when, when it, when, when it actually comes their way. Um, I, I'm not sure if they if they really um, are willing to swallow the bitter pill and 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 really relent on some of their core promises to their voters, um, or whether they would prefer to just be uh, an opposition party and see if they can can uh, raise their profile before the next election. That's how they played it last time. Maybe because uh, uh, Lindner has matured somewhat, uh, and and this it will not happen, but. Um, 
you know, with any other party, I would say these things are written down in a program. And of course, everyone understands that you go into a governing coalition ready to kill some of your darlings. Um, the FDP historically, or at least in the Lindner formation has, uh, kind of not done that. And so I, uh, I'd be, I'd be interested to see if they can do it now. Well, I think they kind of need to this time because they did that thing uh, that you just just said, Adrian, uh, four years ago, and no one really liked it. Like Christian Lindner was criticized a lot because he stepped out of the um, of those talks um, for a coalition. And I mean, those talks, like they, I think it took them weeks and weeks, and then he just said, "No, we just rather um, not govern than govern badly." And and people thought this was. Um, this was not mature, as you said. And I think he cannot really repeat that. So he kind of has to. And he's also in a better position now than four years ago because he can be, or not just him, but also like the whole party. They're like the kingmakers, you know. They can they can actually make um, Armin Laschet chancellor or um, like, like the FDP and the Greens. It's actually up to them now. If they're choosing, and as we speak, I think they, they have, they start talking, uh, the Greens and the Liberals, um, they can actually make um, Armin Laschet chancellor in the so-called Jamaica coalition or in this more likely traffic-like coalition. And I think uh, if Christian Lindner is any smart, he can really use um, this position to get as much out of it as he wants to. So I think like the Social Democrats, they would have to, because also Olaf Scholz is much more popular than Armin Laschet. They have... A lot in it they're the strongest party um but they would like they would really have to because they promised a minimum wage for example they would really have to um get that through and this is something that the liberals really will hate so they would probably say okay you get the minimum va- wage but then no taxes um for like rich people <laughs> um you know so they will they they might find an agreement on that the bigger conflict will definitely be on the debt break um, because um, everyone knows that they have to invest, but uh, the liberals will say we need private investments, you know. And so they they will have to find an agreement also on will there be public, um, will they invest publicly or privately or what kind of deal they will find. I'm sure they can because, as I said, like they actually have to do, uh, they cannot repeat that, that same mistakes again. So um Depending on the framing, they will probably want to get the um, finance ministry and, um, and then they might be doing it. And supposing we did see the traffic light coalition, what would Lindner becoming finance minister mean for the European Union? Since he would seem to be, it would seem to be likely that he would try to push Germany closer to countries such as the Netherlands and Austria, which favour uh, return to fiscal conservatism after the unique event of COVID-19, or at least that's how how they view the change in, in fiscal policy during the crisis. And those countries who oppose reducing economic disparity through economic transfers, would Lindner becoming finance minister potentially even threaten another Eurozone crisis, given the indebtedness of much of, of the continent and, and particularly Italy? Yeah, definitely. It would be a catastrophe. I mean, both for the people in Germany and in Europe, especially Southern Europe, it would be a nightmare because, uh, yeah, he would cling to this debt break and also he would definitely be against any kind of eurobonds and anything that would help to financially stabilize uh, the eurozone. So 
that would be like austerity program um, again, all over again. The thing is, I don't even think like the SPD also wants that actually. Also, Olaf Scholz um, was hinting at that too. So, I mean, he like Christian Lindholm would be a nightmare, but also um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not really um, like I, I wouldn't also trust uh, the Social Democrats on this one and Olaf Scholz. So I think the Greens could, in this kind of coalition, they couldn't really do something about it, even though they have a different stance on it. So it looks, yeah, it looks pretty grim when it comes to um, when it comes to Europe. Adrian, do you agree with that and, and with Ines's scepticism regarding Olaf Scholz as well in terms of a return to austerity in Europe? Absolutely. I think I think I I share her worries. I think that Scholz himself. Is, is far more associated with fiscal discipline. Well, not just fiscal discipline, um, in the German mind than, 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 uh, you know, some others in the SPD, including uh, the party leaders. Um, I, I guess the one note of caution I would sound is a lot will, of course, depend on how everyone interprets their relative performance in this election. And I think one of the interesting things was that, you know, Scholz yesterday said in his in his uh, victory speech that, you know, the, you know, the, the, the German people have said, I'm paraphrasing now, you know, we want the SPD and we want Olaf Scholz as, as chancellor. And I think he was already kind of drawing a line in the sand and saying, they, my brand of politics did this, um, you know, got us back out of the hole. But of course, there is the opposite reading as well, which is, the big loser of this election is Die Linke, the left, right? Um, the way to make the SPD hemorrhage votes and the Linke to reascend to, you know, maybe not its previous heights, but definitely comfortably above 5% again, <clears throat> would be kind of to return to austerity. And I think that a lot of people in the SPD do realize that. The question is, Whose reading of these numbers uh, is going to prevail? Uh, if the if the SPD sees Lindner's course or sees the austerity course in general uh, as basically entering a suicide pact with another party, um, they are not going to go for it. Um, if, however, they think they 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 you know kind of got the Merkel vote um, precisely because they tacked to the right on things like austerity. Um, then, um, then I, I think I forecast, I forecast rather grim things for, for Europe and for Germany. Is there a possibility that in these quite changed circumstances from, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago, that the SPD are now able to recognize that we're in a different world and, and they see the way the wind is blowing perhaps in, in the United States with Joe Biden's administration, even in the UK, obviously that, you know, the conservatives are, are not returning to austerity, at least in the short term. And Schultz himself was, was involved in the EU response to the coronavirus crisis, which at least temporarily tore up the fiscal rules. So do you think there may be reason actually to be somewhat more optimistic about Schultz? Yeah, I mean, he will, as you said, I think it's a, it's a different time. They're not gonna, they're not able to do the same kind of neoliberal agenda that they pushed 20 years ago. Also, because they know that they lost lots of voters, like they lost a huge chunk of their voters base because of that. And they know it. So I think with like um, promises like this minimum wage of 12 euros and all the, the whole campaign was around the word um, respect for you so the whole campaign tried to actually, they did not say they want to, like, they, they did not say, well, we're sorry for Hartz and all that stuff, but they did 
try to leave that past behind. And I, yeah, as you said, we're different. We're living in different times, and they're also looking at at Joe Biden and like huge investments that he's doing. And so they kind of know that they have to that they have to do the same thing, but they don't take the same not to the same proportions. I think they're, as I said, much more in this like political center. I mean, Joe Biden is a centrist too, but like, yeah, even though the coronavirus made him spend a lot and he used this um, word, like um, he was getting out the bazooka. I mean, that was a, that was a nice like stunned uh, inventing this word for it because everyone in the press used it and I'm using it now. Because it was like a good metaphor to say, like, I'm taking out the bazooka and I'm like spending and I save all your jobs and that. That was a strong, strong narrative. And, and it was right to do it at the moment. But this ideological thing with the, with, uh, the debt break is really, really strong in Germany because all it's like economic um, hegemony in Europe is basically based on that kind of export model and austerity you know this combination of germany um exporting a lot while um pressuring the others and also pressuring like the working classes in in its own country mm, keeping wages down exactly so i think this was kind of the, the success model and you don't really you know you cannot really just easily leave that path and the social democrats are not really willing to do that they would just be a little bit more save this time in a sense that yeah i think the the minimum wage thing is sort of one symbol that they learn something that they will do something different but as i said like it, they're, they're not good going to they're not going to use the same kind of big huge investments like uh, like joe biden does even though they could actually the, the big difference between the fdp and the spd on this uh, as ines is saying is, is not ultimately about it's not ultimately about finance, it's about the role of the state, isn't it? And there the FDP kind of did, you know, kind of, I, I don't want to say Corona denialism light, but it was definitely all about reopening and, you know, and, you know, individual freedoms, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the SPD, you know, very much was out there beating the drum for restrictions and for large government expenditures in order to offset those restrictions. And I think the, the tricky part is that both sides, I think, think they won a lot of voters with that, with their particular strategies, even though they were exactly counter to each other. And they're both, I think, kind of right. I noticed yesterday, sort of in the in the flood of numbers, that Karl Lauterbach, who's sort of like the biggest COVID Cassandra there is in German politics, you know, got a result in Leverkusen. I think like he, he was reelected with 45% of the vote or something like that, which it doesn't happen anymore, right? I mean, like, so, so, so being the, being the guy out there who's like, you know, don't take your kids to the playground, like, really worked well for him. And yet the FDP also, I think, succeeded partly by speaking for a different part of the, of, of society that kind of, you know, was like, well, if a couple of grandmas keel over, maybe that's all right. As long as I can, you know, go to the movies and, that's going to be tricky. So that the role of government in all this, independent of what happens with something like the Schuldenbremse, I think uh, really hints at some pretty fundamental differences and at some fundamental differences that they'll have to accentuate unless they want to lose in four years. They've, they've made some very clear and very contradictory promises to their, their respective voters, and now they have to govern together. Thinking about the way the, the campaign itself played out, the CDU and, and other parties of the right engaged in a pretty remarkable amount of red baiting regarding Delinka and the prospect of a red-red-green of a coalition of, of the SPD, Delinka and, and the Greens. 
In a recent article in Foreign Policy, Adam Tooze pointed out that those Red Scare tactics also extended this time to the SPD and its history during the Cold War, and that it brings to mind a time when German politics was far more antagonistic and when it was not uncommon for the left and the right to tar either side with the brush of, of communism or, or Nazism. What do you think is the significance of the, of the rhetoric we've seen from the right during this campaign? And, and do you think it portends a turn to a more agonistic style of politics than Germany has been used to in recent years? Yeah, I mean, the the conservative at some point changed, kind of uh, changed to culture war, <laughs> because uh, I think during the Merkel period, they didn't have to do that because she was so strong, especially the last like two legislatures. She was, she was so popular that you wouldn't have to do this. But now, because there's this power vacuum in the Christian Union, and also because they are pressured by the far right, I think they had to kind of employ this really Red Sox campaign, which was hilarious at points, because as you said, when when they compared Olaf Scholz or Kevin Kühnert and Saskia Esken to like, they're gonna work together with the communists. I mean, that was extremely hilarious, because it was so far from the truth. I mean, at some point, I wished I wish the SPD was as radical as they <laughs> as they said. It was very much far from the truth, and everyone kind of knew it. But still, you know, if a lot, if enough people talk about it like that, something sticks. And there was also this really weird campaign financed by AfD, by like five um, AfD close to AfD um, institutes that paid like this. Um, campaign against the Greens. It was like a like it was like green posters that said socialism and you know I don't know eco socialism. And I thought, wow, this is actually great. <laughs> it sounds like a great poster, but it was like this this campaign against the Greens, and it worked really really well because the Greens and especially Annalena Baerbock um, as a candidate, she opened up uh, you know lots of space, a lot of space for projections like these. Like, even though it was so far from the truth that the Greens were actually going to, um, you know, they're not an eco-socialist party, not at all. No, and they, and they have significant support amongst uh, business, right? Exactly. And so they were like really rather bourgeois kind of, yeah, middle class uh, academic party. But still, this campaign kind of stuck because there were several campaigns like these and also this kind of Red Sox campaign. Something something from this always is, is stucking. And I think what happened is that the SPD and the Greens then try to be try to kind of say no we're not as radical as as the left and so they're trying to distance themselves more and more from this red red green coalition and I think a couple of weeks ago then this uh, discussion started that we could not have a red red green coalition because of NATO you know because the left is just against NATO and you have to actually really really love I think Olaf Scholz used the words like you really have to say yes to the NATO by heart <laughs> uh, in order to... Um, you can't accept it. You have to actually love it. Yeah, you have to really, like, you by heart, you have to say it. And and he said it. Who, who, who here isn't passionate about NATO? <laughs> I mean, uh... And that was weird, you know, because, I mean, obviously, it, he did not say no to this Red Red Green Coalition, but he said you would have to accept and love NATO in order to, to uh, govern with us. And that was a pretty clear no at the time. And I think... This campaign from the right definitely helped this dynamic and and it made it yeah it made it seem even more yeah ridiculous or more unrealistic um, to have this kind of coalition, even though a majority of the people actually wanted it. I mean it was not like a huge majority liked it because it, like basically 
uh, people did not want any of these coalitions. Yes, there's no majority for anything. But it was, the, but this red green coalition was the least. Well, how do you say? It was the most popular one from all the least from all the less popular ones. So yeah, they, they could have done it, and it was pretty close at the end. Still, and I'm I'm not sure whether the left lost because of that. I wouldn't go as far as to say that, but it definitely helped this kind of dynamic against this coalition. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's interesting, right? Like these, these, it, it was this kind of very unusual spectacle, and I, I don't know if this portends, as you asked earlier, it portends a, a seismic shift in German politics. What it was was that the CDU decided to throw a Trump campaign, and I think, I think, I mean, I, I, I really think that that's that's how one has to put it. It was, you know, it was all about painting your opponents as these far out radicals right this this red baiting that you mentioned it was all about uh, these kinds of nothing burgers of you know that just uh, were meant to paint especially Annalena Baerbock as as somehow untrustworthy right this is how like you know it's like she what is it, there were a couple of copied sentences in one of her books it's like well gee it's it's not like there's a climate climate crisis on like you know glad we're focusing on the big stuff they had you know huge help from from the Springer press so especially Bild right and these kind of frankly outlandish culture war scenarios that Ines alluded to for instance that I mean I can't even translate this but there is a trend now in certain areas of, of German letters to put a little asterisk in the middle of words in order to indicate that you're being gender inclusive and that became somehow you know in the middle of a campaign that saw you know unprecedented catastrophe in Germany the floods in the summer yeah the floods in the summer this became somehow the thing that that people were supposed to cast their vote based on right it 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 entirely felt like and and now by the way Laschet seems to be deciding that he kind of won the election and wants to form a coalition government like he it really feels like they read all those you know trump books from the united states and were like and and thought of it as kind of a how-to guide i do think that given that it didn't i mean it worked in preventing red red green but it didn't work in any positive sense for the cdu my guess is if i had to put money down i'd say this is gonna be a passing thing i just think I, I, it just turns out that the that the potential for a voter or the the possible pool of voters that gets excited by this kind of thing it, it's just it a is not that big in germany and b it's gonna vote for you anyway right if if, if gender queer people upset you yeah i got news for you already voting for the cdu right like there is uh so so i do think that i do think that that's not probably that doesn't have staying power i do worry about the success of the red baiting i do think that it's gonna it's gonna spook uh it's gonna spook the left parties for some time going forward in that sense i am i am kind of glad that the spd did as well as it did right if they think well they can just come and it's not going to really hurt us you know it, it does kind of make them may make them more confident in terms of in terms of in terms of their own policies or less timid let's say there was a time when they sort of ran the other way whenever the links party was mentioned because they thought they were losing they would lose voters themselves and it turns out this election doesn't look like that happened um and so at least there there might be some assertive assertiveness yeah yeah i mean they didn't explicitly the spd didn't, didn't explicitly rule out the red red green coalition right that's right. In fact, they, they treated it as a, as a, as an equal option among many. And yeah, and when things like NATO came up, you know, it, it was, it was just kind of this, it, these language games, right? They kept asking the, 
the left, well, would you relent from this position in, you know, uh, coalition talks? And they kept finding ways of saying, of not saying it, but being like, look, obviously, when you negotiate with someone, everything's on the table. So, yeah, but we're not going to say that right before an election. And so the whole thing did have kind of a, you know, in, in Germany, you say Schmierenkomödie. It was all just, it was a bunch of theater. But I think that is different from, from I can remember the, the early 2000s where the SPD would run scared at the very indication, uh, in, uh, uh, very um, intimation that they might in the end uh, enter a coalition with the Linkspartei. On the, the campaign of, of, of the CDU and, and going down to this historic defeat, a lot of the media has been focused on the candidacy of Armen Laschet, the wrong candidate, he ran a bad campaign. Would you want to put that much emphasis on that? Or, or is it really more about the fact that in past elections, CDU voters have, have really been voting for, for Angela Merkel rather than the party as such? Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit of both that um, some voters, and you can see that from which voters went to which party, that a, a huge bunch of the CDU voters actually went to the SPD, which kind of signals that because they were like looking for this kind of Merkel type, I would say, for this kind of stability, a lot of people thought that Olaf Scholz represented it much better. So that would hint at at the conclusion that, um, yeah, this Angela Merkel was a factor. But I also think that the campaign was actually really bad. It was much worse than I had expected. Like, usually the CDU is well prepared and they are like a block, you know. They would, nothing would come out of this. If, if they would have a candidate, they would probably hide all the, you know, hide all the information from any meeting, any power struggles. You would never know. But this time it was it was bad. Like the the struggle with Marco Suda from Bavaria about who's going to be the chancellor, it was actually all open on on Twitter, which was very unusual for um, the Christian Democrats, who are so disciplined. Actually, they're like um, they call it Kanzler Wahlverein. You would usually, you know, every every person um, for, in parliament is usually so disciplined that they would vote for any kind of candidate and they would agree on it and nothing comes out. But this time, everyone knew everything and it was like an open fight and you could see the power vacuum that Merkel has left. And now there were like actually three or four guys struggling for dominance. It was, you know, it was Marco Söder from Bavaria, but also Friedrich Merz, like the former BlackRock, um, you know, like the perfect kind of capitalist. And then, I mean, Laschet, who's actually more of a migration-friendly, more like even worker-friendly wing from the CDU. So was, he's not even the worst guy from all of them, to be honest. So he was actually more of the peaceful kind of guy. And I think, so like the inner workings of the party they had like really lots of tensions that they, like, they usually don't do. And this kind of also made the campaign even worse. And I think Armin Laschet was under a lot of pressure. He should have held it and like he should have taken taken it, but he really made lots of mistakes. Like during the flooding, like he, he stood there in front of cameras and he was laughing, making jokes while people lost their homes and stuff like that. So that looked really bad. And yeah, they also the whole the whole um, party. They didn't have a vision. They didn't even have a program up until I think four weeks before the election or six weeks, and the program was really tiny and it didn't really have anything in it. And he had nothing substantial to say. Like even on those TV shows where they, you know, when the three candidates um, met, 
you could see that Armin Lascher did not did have nothing on his hands. And I think people then just decided to, okay, well, at least Olaf Scholz, he was kind of getting us through this crisis. As finance minister, he was in a, in a good position to do that. And Armin Laschet was really bad also as a prime minister in his own state. So why would you trust Armin Laschet with anything, you know? Yeah, so I suppose paradoxically, despite Schultz being from a rival party, he's, he's more able to seem like the safe pair of hands and, and, and the incumbent. Yeah. Yeah, there is a kind of fundamental unseriousness to Laschet that, I mean, I, I, I must admit that I I was, I lived for some time of my, my childhood in Aachen, where Laschet is from. And there's a kind of, he, he, his mode of being public is, is very carnivalesque. He's very much, you know, it's jovial. It's, it's, it's sort of winning, but it is kind of unserious, uh, frankly. And, and, and I think that that, given how unserious this election campaign was, you almost would have thought that this would succeed, but it, but it, it just sort of, um, the, the few times that true, you know, statesmanship or at least a simulation of it was called for. It turns out he couldn't do it. He couldn't, um, he couldn't really project it. If we think a little bit about the legacy of, of Angela Merkel. So despite being the leader of, of, of a conservative party, Merkel is very well regarded in, in liberal circles abroad. She's seen as a, a politician who represents moderation, a kind of sober realism, and even a certain cosmopolitan openness to an extent, given her response to the refugee crisis in 2015, when Germany accepted a million refugees from Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and of course, she was uh, famously referred to as the leader of the free world for a time after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. Do you think that reputation is deserved? And, and if not, what do you think people outside of Germany tend to miss about Merkel and Merkelism? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is it is really striking. And I think that it is kind of shifting. My impression is it's shifting in Germany, too. There is a kind of Merkel nostalgia um, that I think would have been hard to imagine uh, even four years ago. But I do think that there is what what it misses is you know that that you know uh, uh, both Merkel and kind of the chancellor she clearly modeled herself her chancellorship after Helmut Kohl took on some pretty major historical events by kind of just sitting there. There's a kind of fundamental inactivity and passivity to both of them which can at sometimes at sometimes be read as strength but which i think ultimately is not very good for society at large and i think that's the thing that that is easy to miss you know it's 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 reassuring to have a leader who is who is uh you know whose first instinct is not to leap into something especially you know after you know 4 years of donald trump at the same time it it is also there's a kind of valorization of timidity and a a kind of you know and and this really dangerous illusion that you know german phrases weiter so that you can just kind of carry on the way you've been carrying on that uh, this kind of leadership projects and that i think really does the country a disservice and i don't think it's an ex- it's it's a an accident that far right violence and far right political parties have were ascendant during the cool years and during the Merkel years there's this kind of stultification does have these downstream consequences that are that are really quite dangerous and they're dangerous precisely to the most vulnerable no matter Merkel's position during the so-called refugee crisis i think that it's 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 really you know, I, th- I think that's that's uh, very easy for for outsiders to miss. Th- that you can talk about the Merkel years as kind of moments of steady leadership, but just as easily you could say that it's it's uh, you know really a, a lost decade. 
You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.